Good morning. Let me ask you please to open your Bibles now to the 18th chapter of the book of Acts. As today we look at the mission in Corinth. Our reading today will be, of course, verses 1 through 18. And please now give attention to the reading of God's Word. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left them there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus the ruler of the synagogue believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many people in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. This is God's word. Let us pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word. It truly is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And we pray today that the spirit who breathed out this word would breathe into us the ability to see, understand, appropriate, and live according to the word we hear today. And we would pray that you would bless us because you love to bless us and because we need to be blessed. 
So nourish us, strengthen us, feed our souls. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, obviously, Corinth is a very important city in the mission of the Apostle Paul because you have in your Bible two letters he wrote to this particular church. 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians are letters Paul wrote to the church that was being formed in Corinth. And this is the establishment of that church. And one note off the top of my head that should cause you to be even more interested is Paul spent 18 months at this church. Now, this church had a lot of problems. Obviously, if you read First and Second Corinthians, it was far from a perfect church. But it was a real church. And Paul obviously invested a lot of time in ministry. So let's think a little bit together for a moment about the city of Corinth because it's very important to understand the context in which this mission started. The city of Corinth was at a very narrow bridge of land only three miles, three and a half miles wide that connected the Peloponnese Peninsula with mainland of Greece to the north. It was at the center of the north-south travel route, but also the east-west route. Goods could be brought to a port just to the east of Corinth and transported overland a few miles to a port to the west, and that saved a 200-mile journey uh, uh, by ship around the south of the peninsula. As a result, Corinth was a major commercial and finance center. Like many urban centers based on business and wealth, Corinth became famous for a degree of corruption and immorality that was remarkable even for the ancient world. In classical Greek, to Corinthianize something became a symbol for fornication. At the center of, you know, we think Las Vegas is the only sin city in the history of the world. Well, every city sin city, as far as I know. But by the same token, Corinth probably resonated a lot with both this city and San Francisco because San Francisco is more of a port city. But it's very, very similar in its size and influence. At the center of Corinth was the Temple of Aphrodite on a mesa uh, about 500 feet up and it employed thousands of female slaves and prostitutes who roamed the city. It was also a sailor's port and I don't want to say anything too bad about sailors uh, that hadn't already been said because a lot has but obviously sailors frequented uh, this city and so it was known for that trade as well. Uh, these cities were immense by biblical standards of the time in 1850, there were only four cities in the world with over 100, uh, 1 million inhabitants. Yet in Paul's day, we believe that Ephesus had over 500,000, Corinth nearly 750,000, and Rome over a million. To put things in perspective, it may be helpful to think of Athens, the city we talked about last week, as the intellectual city of the empire, something like Palo Alto or Stanford or to, to make it on the west coast or maybe Boston on the east coast. And Corinth was a commercial center somewhat like New York or LA 
And Ephesus was uh, a popular culture occult center, and Rome was the political power center like Washington, D.C. So when we look at Paul and his going to Corinth, he was certainly at a crossroads in the world at that time. Very influential place to be. And so it was the crossroads of Achaia, both geographically and culturally. As I said earlier, port cities populated by sailors often exhibit moral laxness, and it was a decadent, even by Roman Empire standards, for sexual depravity. Yet the city also had a well-established Jewish community with a synagogue, and the metropolis would pose a challenge for anyone trying to live in a Christ-centered way. Uh, but it also would become a springboard for the gospel to move throughout the known world at that time. And so Paul, as I said earlier, settled in Corinth for 18 months, patiently planting the seed for others to water and laying a solid foundation on which others would build. And so we come immediately into the text and we meet two new people, Aquila and Priscilla, hospitable co-workers. And upon his arrival in Corinth, Paul met a Jew named Aquila and his wife Priscilla. Paul had a lot in common with this couple because they were both Jewish. All three were Jewish in background. And we believe Aquila and Priscilla had been kicked out of Rome because they believed that Jesus was the Christ. They had converted, as it were, to Christianity. Paul had a lot in common with them. They were Jews from the dispersion. Pontus was in northern Asia Minor on the Black Sea. They both practiced their trades and had been forced to move because of faith in Jesus the Messiah. According to the second century historian Suetonius, the emperor Claudius's edict expelling Jews from the capital was prompted by civil unrest among the Jewish population of Rome instigated by one known as Crestus, which is a Latinized form of Christos, the Christ, the Messiah. And so to restore tranquility to the city, Claudius ordered all the Jews out of Rome. And although the edict was never repealed, eventually its enforcement was neglected, and we do know that Jews, including Priscilla and Aquila, resettled in Rome. Wherever this couple appears in the New Testament, we see believers enjoying their hospitality. Apparently, tent-making was a very profitable, successful business, mainly because lots of Jews lived in tents that were made of leather. So there's some dispute whether they were leather workers or tent makers, but I think there was an overlap there. That was a skill they shared. But apparently they did well of it because, at it because they had homes large enough to welcome the church to meet there wherever they lived. Uh, in their home, the gifted preacher Apollos was instructed more accurately in God's way. We'll see that later. While they lived at Ephesus and then at Rome, the churches of those cities met in their homes. In our day, isolated as we are, by the COVID virus, individualism, and stress by overcommitment, believers need to rediscover the joy of this ministry exemplified in the practice of Priscilla and Aquila opening our homes to others. 
There is nothing like the fellowship of opening your home to other believers and having them over to share a meal and to have interaction and talk and get to know one another. There is something redemptive about that. There is something connecting about that. And so I would encourage, and I know this encouragement has been emphasized before in this church, for us, even in COVID, you'll have to limit and you'll have to use wisdom, but there is the opportunity occasionally, and hopefully in the future more so, to exercise hospitality. Paul not only lived with them, but he also labored beside them in their shared trade of tent making. Unlike the sophist and other professional orators, Paul refused to make his audience pay uh, for his message or his announcement of God's free gift. Instead, he supported himself uh, and his team by hard work, providing an example of responsibility and generosity to uh, younger believers. Paul insisted, however, that the church should meet the material needs of its teachers, but he was willing to forego that right in order to offer God's grace free of charge. You have to understand that the orators at this particular time period were the rock stars of the first century. These were the people who were well-known. These were the people who gathered crowds like a concert. These were the people who charged admission. And the more flowery and sophisticated they thought they were, the bigger draw they had, the more money they made. And Paul refused to be paid because he didn't want to be painted with that brush. If you read First and Second Corinthians, you're going to see him compare and contrast his ministry with the uh, sophisticated uh, orators of his day that were pretty much full of hot air. But notice Paul does what he always does when he comes to a new city. If there's a synagogue there, he goes. His work days are filled with tent making, and then on the Sabbaths he attempts to persuade Jews and God-fearing Greeks in the synagogue. The arrival of his colleagues, that is, Silas and Timothy coming from Macedonia enabled him to devote all of his time to testifying that Jesus is the promised Christ. And it was important that he do so. Thus Luke alludes to the generous gifts from the Macedonian churches at Philippi who showed gratitude for God's grace by supporting Paul's outreach to others. Their donations freed Paul to devote more time to his calling as God's ambassador. Eventually, the opposition of unbelieving Jews hardened, and their abuse of the gospel made the synagogue an inhospitable venue for further witness. And as he had in Pisidian Antioch, Paul saw Jewish transigents as freeing him to focus upon the Gentiles. We've seen this before in following Paul's path. Uh, with a reference to the imagery of Ezekiel's prophecy, Paul announced that he had discharged his responsibility as a watchman, sounding the alarm, so that those who refused to heed would be bringing the impending bloodshed upon their own he heads. Um, He'll do that again as he reminds the elders at the Ephesians church that he was innocent of the blood of all, for he had proclaimed the whole counsel of God to Jews and Greeks with tears and urgent compassion. 
In a gesture of judgment, the apostle shook his robes. Even the moats of the synagogue, as it were, he had shaken off from his sandals, renouncing contact with the stubborn unbelievers among his own people, though he grieved for his people constantly. Paul didn't have to travel far, however, to find a, a new base of operations for his ongoing proclamations. Next door to the synagogue, right next door to it, was the house of Titius Justus, a Gentile God-fearer who had believed and opened his home to the church. Many Corinthians believed and submitted to baptism, including one of very special note, the synagogue ruler himself. Crispus came to faith with his whole household. He came out of the few in Corinth. Uh, he became one of the few in Corinth to be baptized by Paul himself. Unlike the entrenched Jewish leaders elsewhere, Crispus did not react defensively to Paul's message, but listened with the openness of the Bereans, putting it to the test of Scripture, finding it thus to be true. Thus in Corinth, the gospel was indeed the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But notice how God encourages his preacher. You would think, one would think, after Paul having success already in Corinth, that he would be elated, that he would be lifted up, in, as it were, almost into the clouds, that he'd be so excited that the message has found a target, that people had believed they had been converted, and he would have been like walking on air. But instead, he tells us in his first letter to the Corinthian church that I came in weakness and in trembling. The man was downright depressed. He was downright blue. Like Elijah. You remember Elijah in the Old Testament who met the prophets of Baal, 450 of them and another 400 of them uh, on Mount Carmel and offered the sacrifice and had an amazing victory that day for Yahweh under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament. And yet in the next chapter, we find this same guy running from, for his life from Jezebel, the queen, exhausted, ready for God to kill him to take his life because he was so depressed. Why? Because ministry saps you. Ministry can suck, as it were, the life out of you. Paul honestly acknowledged his apprehension, his sense of helplessness that he felt at Corinth. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. To bolster his trembling spokesman's courage, the Lord Jesus spoke to Paul in a night vision. His words combined a gentle rebuke, a stirring mandate, and strong promises. The tense of the verb in the rebuke, do not be afraid, called Paul to abandon the terror to which he had surrendered himself. Stop fearing. Now, the Bible says that a lot. Why does the Bible say that so much? Because we're fearful people. We are very fearful people. And we should be. <laughs> we should be. Nobody here is able to control the world or the universe. And we're fearful people. And God comes to his preacher, to his missionary, and says, Stop fearing. Hear that echo in your mind every single day. 
Now, if, if that's all God said was stop fearing, he tells him why he needs to stop fearing as he continues with his promises. So Paul is called to abandon the terror which he had surrendered, and he called Paul to continue speaking in Jesus' name, allowing no intimidation to silence him. The Lord reinforced his summons to resist fear with the promises of his presence. I am with you. That is the antidote to fear. That is the blow that brings it to its knees. The Lord reinforced uh, his summons to resist fear with the promise of his presence as he often did when calling his servants to daunting task. I am with you. He did it to Moses in Exodus 3. He did it to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1. He did it to Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1 8. And Jesus promised his preacher protection from harm. Not for Paul's personal comfort, but because many people in Corinth were Jesus' property, given to him by the Father. This is the verse God used to speak to my heart to come to Las Vegas in 1988 and preach uh, the gospel and plant Spring Meadows Presbyterian Church. Because God told Paul, I have many people in that city that are my property. They belong to me. I have chosen them. They are mine. And uh, they are the ones I gave to the Son to redeem. Uh, when my wife, uh, we moved out here, Pam, went to a woman's conference, women's conference, the first year we were here. And somebody made her a really cool badge. It was a women's ministry thing, so you needed a little, what do you call those things, badges? Name tag. It was a name tag, wasn't it? And somebody had made her a really good Las Vegas-looking uh, name tag. Now, you got to understand, she was going to Atlanta, Georgia, okay? And so we, she goes to Atlanta, Georgia, and she's sitting around the table, meeting and greeting all these people, and there are just a few uh, antebellum-type Southern women in the PCA. Just a couple. <laughs> Maybe hundreds. And at her table, this woman... Everyone was introducing themselves, and it came around to Pam's time, and she said, well, my name's Pam Posey, and my husband is a church planner in Las Vegas, Nevada. And this woman gasped, and out of her mouth came, why would we ever put a church in that place? <laughs> now, Pam's much more gracious than me, I probably would have said enough things to, got, to have been removed and thrown out of the meeting. That's exactly the kind of place where Jesus would go. That's exactly. But I took courage from this passage, uh, just to let you know in a personal way, this passage had a lot to do. Uh, two things had to do with my coming here. Uh, God called me to come here. The PCA sent me here. Uh, there'd be three things. And then the core group that was gathered here was so sweet and so hungry for the Word of God, we could not deny uprooting ourselves from everything we knew and coming out here, which to us was in the middle of nowhere. And look what God did. And we're even down by COVID. Look what God did. God knew what He was doing. He knew what He was about. And so, no one could stop 
these people hearing Christ's life-giving voice as he laid claim to their hearts through his gospel. So Paul stayed a further 18 months grounding this church which stood at the crossroads of trade and power in the word of the living God. But as usual, opposition arose and the source of it is pretty consistent. The vision prepared Paul for a new legal assault by the Jews who opposed the gospel. Gallio, the brother of the philosopher Seneca in Claudius's court, became the proconsul of Achaia in A.D. 51 or 52. The complaint that the Jews lodged with Gallio alleged that Paul persuaded people to worship God in ways that were contrary to the law of Moses. They claimed that Paul was advocating a new religion, not the ancient Judaism that Rome had made allowances for. A new religious movement had begun, and sometimes the political byproduct of that would be disruptive of the Pax Romana, and if the proconsul of the entire providence judged Christianity a dangerous novelty to be quashed, his decision could be cited as a legal precedent throughout the Roman Empire. Paul was prepared, as he always was. He opens his mouth, but he didn't get to say anything. He was prepared to demonstrate from the Scriptures that he was preaching nothing but what Moses had already foretold. He had opened his mouth to do so when the proconsul dismissed the whole proceeding, refusing to adjudicate an internal controversy within the Jewish community. Now, isn't that interesting? Uh, R.C. Sproul, in his work on this, uh, gave a little bit of history here that I didn't know that I'm going to include. So we see Paul, in this incident, uh, go through this. He is ultimately freed to preach the gospel for more than an additional ten years. Uh, that is because the Jews appealed to the Roman proconsul Gallio, and they dragged Paul to the judgment place. So, uh, suddenly, Paul was on trial, not before Jesus, but before Roman authorities. Listen carefully. Gallio had just recently been appointed proconsul, probably in conjunction uh, with Claudius's activity. Gallio's brother Seneca was one of the most famous writers of the Roman world. Seneca was a famous as a moralist, and a sage in his day. He was celebrated for his wisdom. Seneca dedicated two of his books to his brother Gallio. They shared a common commitment to wisdom and justice, even as pagans, common grace. In fact, their commitment to a high standard of justice and morality got them in deep trouble more than a decade later when the wicked Roman emperor Nero executed Seneca and Gallio so the man who intervened here in Corinth to save Paul's life and to preserve the legitimacy of his ministry in the Roman provinces was later martyred by Nero, who also killed Paul. You never know when you meet somebody if you're going to see them again, do you? And they did. But God used this because the opposition was ultimately thwarted. When the plaintiffs and the accused had been ejected from Gallio's courtroom, Sosthenes, who had succeeded Crispus as synagogue ruler, was the one who suffered harm rather than Paul. We are not told the identity or motive of those who beat them. 
Possibly Gentiles took advantage of the Jewish leader's humiliation to express some anti-Semitic hostility, or perhaps the Jews themselves were venting frustration uh, at this setback to their po uh, public image. In any case, Jesus proved true to his word. None could harm Paul because through him, Jesus was gathering his many people. Like the witnesses in John's mysterious vision who symbolized the suffering and testifying church, Paul was invincible as we are, are ourselves until, until our mission on earth is complete. I believe that. I believe that the Lord will call me when I'm done. And I don't know when that is. He knows when that is. But I, I don't want to be foolish about it and go walk down the middle of the interstate or anything. But isn't it amazing? So what are some things we can take away from this message today from these 18 uh, verses? Sometimes the only way through obstacles, as in the first stage of the mission, is faithfulness, patient plodding along, waiting on God for relief. But other times, as in the second stage of this ministry, verses 5 through 8, it's best to be aggressive and take a whole different approach. Some will be confused and say, well, how do you know which situation is which? That, of course, takes wisdom. But it also takes the confidence that comes from meditating on the promises and directions of God in verses 9 and 10. In other words, we should not be paralyzed uh, with fear when we consider uh, whether we consider patiently plotting or changing directions. We make decisions if we are not sure because we remember that this whole passage has taught us, namely, that God is supervising things and will help us. Though that help can come all sorts of times and in all sorts of shapes. From God's directions in verses 9 through 10, we learn that God, first of all, tells Paul, do not be afraid. How can that be a command? It's best not to think of this as a separate command from what follows. You have to try to directly stop yourself from feeling the... You don't have to try to stop yourself from feeling fear. Rather, you should understand that God is saying to you, you will not be afraid if you do the following things. What are those things? He tells Paul, do something. Keep on speaking. Here's a command to do an act of the will. God is telling Paul to open his mouth and share the gospel despite his fear. Remember something. There are two things that God calls Paul to remember if he's to get his courage back. Remember that I am with you. The word for means that Paul is not simply to speak out, but to speak out remembering and meditating on the fact that God is with him. And of course, the very experience of the vision brought Paul a vivid sense of God's presence. So we are to take this as direction to seek a sense of God's presence. Secondly, he says, no one is going to attack or harm you, which is a reminder that God is Lord of history and nothing will happen that is not for God's glory and Paul's benefit. That is sort of a Romans 8.28 assurance. Notice how later in the chapter, Paul attributes everything that happens to God's will and how Luke offhandedly remarks the, uh, that the people only believe or are converted by his grace and then finally see something I have many people in this city 
This is the most remarkable direction of all. Paul is told not to look at Corinth as full of enemies, but full of friends. God is saying that he has many people he intends to call to himself. And Paul is to see the city through God's eyes filled with potential and future children of God. God wants to use Paul and protect Paul for their sake. That is how we should look at this city. Most Christians who initially moved to Las Vegas are just like Jonah going to Nineveh. It's just like, I don't want to live in that city. Look at that. It's just, it's just despicable. But you haven't yet seen this city as a mission field. You haven't yet seen this city through God's eyes. God has people here, and you are the person he has determined to use to reach these people. If you are here, you are here. Why? Because God put you here. And why did God put you here? To reach out and share the gospel with those around you and to love on other believers. What a powerful, powerful passage of Scripture underlying God's sovereignty and at the same time, his use of means to accomplish great things in this city. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we have seen and heard today in the scriptures. Uh, we pray we would be encouraged today as we think about our place in this city. Most people curse the darkness. They move here and they curse the darkness. Oh, it's just so full of sin. It's so wicked. It's so evil. But they never try to be the light of, and the salt, light of the world and the salt of the earth. And Father, we pray that we, you would give us a God's eye vision of this place and our place here and what we are to be about as your church. Give it to me, give it to the leadership, give it to everyone who is part of this beloved body, uh, Spring Meadows. Now, fathers, we continue to worship you. We pray that you would continue to minister to us your grace and your truth in Jesus Christ. Amen.